0: Hello and welcome to Monocle on Culture, I'm Robert Bound. On today's episode we're speaking with a titan of filmmaking, Guillermo del Toro. Something of a directorial shapeshifter, he moves between Spanish and English language films as well as movies as diverse as Pan's Labyrinth, Pacific Rim and Nightmare Alley. For del Toro's efforts, he's been the recipient of not one, but two Academy Awards. Underpinning all of this work is a sense of the mythic. Fairy tales, monsters and the grotesque are brought to life on the screen in ways that stretch the imaginative boundaries of cinema. Yet while his pictures may be dark and twisted, often featuring mutants and ghosts, they're beautiful in their meditations on what it means to be human, and not to mention visually arresting. His most recent film, Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio, is an intricate stop-motion reinvention of the familiar story that plays on themes of religion, fairy tale, and mortality. In the following clip, Pinocchio has followed his father and creator Geppetto to church, where the congregation are horrified at the sight of a puppet with seemingly independent thought and movement.
1: Papa! It speaks! Papa, Papa, over
0: here!
2: Pinocchio!
1: It's me! I came to church! It's a
0: demon! <gasps> Witchcraft! Malocchio! Pinocchio! Pinocchio! No, no, please! It's, it's a puppet! to, to entertain. If he's a puppet, where are his strings?
2: That's true! Who controls you, wooden boy?
0: Of course, I control him. Who controls you? No one talks to the Podesta like that. <laughs> he, he, he's, a, he's a puppet, just a puppet. No, I'm not.
1: i made of flesh and bone and meaty bits. I'm a real boy. <laughs>
0: I'm handing over the reins for today's episode to our producer, Sophie, who met Guillermo del Toro and his Pinocchio co-director and a master of stop-motion, Mark Gustafson. We'll hear that interview at the end of the show. Sophie began by asking del Toro where his relationship started with Pinocchio, both the story and the character.
2: Well, I saw the movie really early. It was, I think, the second or third movie I saw with my mom, in the cinema. And, uh, you know, it affected me deeply. On the one hand, I thought Disney Pinocchio captured how scary childhood was or felt for me. But on the other hand, it was really nagging in my mind that he had to obey and that he had to transform into a quote-unquote real boy. And I said to my mom when I was very young, I said, I'm going to do my own little version. And I had a Super 8 camera and I was a mini muggle shooting Super 8s every time I can. And I was doing clay animation. So uh, it didn't happen, and then it stayed in my mind, and I eventually recuperated in my 20s, this idea of uh, we can do Pinocchio in a different way. Of course, I didn't have the tools, but it stayed in my mind. The character, to me, is universal. It belongs to that very small club of characters that even people that have not read the book get the notion of the character, Dracula, Frankenstein, Tarzan, Sherlock Holmes, The Count of Monte Cristo, you know, you get a whole world with those. And Pinocchio has always been about truth. For me, it's not about lies, it's about truth. What do you make the world, or how do you discover it?
1: You mentioned that when you saw it as a child, it captured something about fear and about something being quite scary. Yes, And in your version, death, which of course is, is always in the story, is very close to the surface. yes. Did you always see it as a story that was really intertwined with questions of mortality and, and death?
2: When I read the book, finally, in my 20s, you know, I read it much, much later, I found a lot of commonalities with Colodi. Colodi had a very strange, oblique, Catholic imagery. Uh, he was going to be a priest. He wasn't, but he was his inclinations, the metaphor of Jonah and the whale with Pinocchio inside the fish, the notion of uh, sort of evoking the crucifixion, being made of wood and nails. And the fact that in one of the early chapters, I think chapter 13 or 17, he hangs Pinocchio from a tree, and, and then the black rabbits of death come for him when he gets the flu and doesn't take his medicine. This notion started to float in. I'm Mexican, so to me the notion of death is not a dire one. I really think it's just the tick and the tack of the metronome of life, of the universe. We exist between a tick and a tack. It's very brief, and uh, life for a Mexican uh, makes sense because there is death. So it's a very peculiar way of seeing it.
1: And you touched there on the kind of religious imagery, and there's this wonderful scene where Pinocchio looks up at a statue of Christ and can't really understand why everyone reveres this image and he's made out of the same object.
2: The notion for me was to construct it about identity, about finding who you are in a world where adults are telling you not to lie about little things, but they are living under a giant political lie. And they are enthroning obedience as a virtue when disobedience is needed. And part of his questioning of the world comes with him not understanding uh, what the adults say the worthy things are, and what he's experiencing, you know. Also, it was constructed around three or four father and son stories, Spazzatura and Volpe, the fascist officer and his son, Geppetto and Pinocchio, and it was Jesus and his father. Is another father and son story. And very much like Pinocchio, Jesus was sent into the world to seek the truth, and Pinocchio, much like Jesus, resurrects several times loses the same arm than the Jesus loses in the bombardment, et cetera, et cetera. So these are it's like a hall of mirrors where another father and son story can be the strong figure of the fatherland and the father the Mussolini projecting a uh, a father figure, type of strongman figure, et cetera, et cetera. So these things illuminate each other. The notion of death actually being more gentle with Pinocchio and more careful than life. life comes in, gives Pinocchio life and goes away. But death is ever present and ever caring and teaches Pinocchio the value of choice He says you choose you can go back but you will be mortal And the whole movie is trying to say you are not a real person until you choose something for someone else you know and it's, uh, it's a curious, Uh, metaphor for me this uh, dialogue with death
1: within that as you say there's so much of this is about the rise of fascism and that father-son relationship is Mm -hmm. kind of reflected in that as well and you're well known for your kind of bringing together of the personal and the political in in a lot of your work is it something that is always intertwined from the beginning or or what comes first and how do do they fit together? We
2: started talking about making this movie in 2004 and it was right between Devil's Backward and Pan's Labyrinth. And I thought, well, I didn't think I was gonna get to make all three of them. So I was thinking I'll get this one. And it came like that, it came, uh, I thought what better place to test disobedience than in an obedient totalitarian system, right? what better way to illustrate the big lies than a war. You know? And much like in Devil's one and later in Panzering, the war appears on the fringes, but affects everybody in the town in the most intimate ways. So it was always like and for me it was very personal. I lost my father right after Ship of Water and I became I got the reviews of my kids about my parenting when they turned into their teens. And it's a really tough time. But instead of denying them, I chose to examine them. And uh, I realized that they were right. By the way, I I think this is true. When people say, oh, they are going through a difficult phase. No, they're going through a truthful phase. And you better listen at that time. So it was a re-examining of uh, imperfect fathers and imperfect sons, as I said.
1: You said that you've thought about this story and creating this film since your 20s and it's taken a long time to come into fruition and then the production itself took a long time. How do you think the story and the message changed over that period of time? Well,
2: it certainly had a lot to do with uh, me actually realizing that fatherhood is highly fallible. Being a father helped me see my father and understand him, and understand that uh, this is something that was in some way foisted by life upon him, that he saw himself as a guy, as just him, Federico, and not my father. And he saw this kid as something that he didn't quite understand, and I understood all that. That changed it. and. In the fact that it took so long, it also included the ruminations uh, and the making of peace with the fact that we live very briefly. And I don't see this with any trepidation. I actually like it. There is a poem by Jaime Sabines, a Mexican poet, that says, All of my life I've heard a voice whispered softly in my ear, Live, live, live. It was death. And realizing that, that the ending is actually something beautiful, And as I was saying yesterday, we we were talking to an audience, and I said there are three miracles in life, birth, love, and death. Two of them are very hard to absorb. One, you can be fully prepared for because it's coming, and it creates a sense of duty, a sense of loyalty, a sense of love. It's really, I I think that uh, death is, are we there yet, of philosophy. You know, you are saying, uh, when is it coming? How? What is it going to be? Inevitably, vertebrates life.
1: I think there's so much, and especially children's stories, there is mm-hmm. so much death oh, yeah. often. Yes. But for some reason, it's slightly obscured and it's not looked at kind of right in the eye. Yes. And this is this film really does do that and also shows it as something which we should accept and, and is oh, what yes. defines life.
2: It is, and it was a movie that was very hard. Everybody turned it down. Every studio turned it down twice. And uh, it's because they said, is it for kids? And I would say, no, it is not made for kids, but kids can watch it. Very different. We're not making a babysitter movie. We're making a movie that families can watch, but it will provoke uh, discussion. Kids will have questions. They're gonna know that about war. We live in a world that is far more complex. I think studios think of kids as a, as a sort of preconception of happiness, but really kids now know a lot of more dire things than we knew when I was a kid. Like uh, we, they know the doomsday clock is closer to midnight. They know we have destroyed the environment. They know that a pandemic is possible. Most of us have experienced in the last three years a loss or two or three in our lives, and uh, so it's a complex time. And I think fairy tales and fables have always helped you assemble the world. Not avoid it, reassemble it through metaphor, through parable. And I think those are tools that you have to give to stories like this, the acceptance of them being a parable.
1: You say... You've kind of looked at it as this unofficial trilogy with Pan's Labyrinth and The Devil's Backbone. And it also really made me think of Kronos as well, some of some of your other work. Yeah. With all of these films, do you think you're always asking similar questions and are you ever kind of nearing nearing an answer on them, or is that really just Mm, No,
2: I think Binagio has a beautiful, beautiful statement uh, or two. I think wh- for me, the summation of my 58 years in this world is what happens happens and then we're gone, which is a very simple way of pu- uh, putting... It gives you humility to know that. you know. It gives you a very cosmic humility because we're very brief and very inconsequential. When I talk to friends, they say this or that, and I say, look, we didn't invent the world. We're not going to solve it. We, we can just hold it for a little while and try to make it slightly more uh, sort of comprehensible. So when I think about my questions in doing Kronos, the final image of Kronos is a child standing by the bed of the father figure dying while the sun pours through the window, which is exactly the final scene in Pinocchio before the coda at the end. And the matter of chronos is immortality is not desirable. Mortality is, which is Pinocchio. So I think somebody said, I, I think it was Jean Renoir's father. He said, uh, a painter paints the same tree all his life. And I think that's true. We pursue not many questions, but one And I've been thinking about death since I was seven. And I think I've come to a conclusion. It doesn't have to be a conclusion everybody agrees with, but this is is imbued in Pinocchio.
1: You've been thinking about death since you were seven. There's, There's so much in this film that kind of relates to your childhood, both you watching Pinocchio and also the animation, which I'll get onto in a moment. In that space of time, between then and now this film coming out, What has your work in cinema and all these other films you've made, how has that shaped you and shaped what this film has become but really how you think about cinema?
2: The thing is, uh, I believe that we exist in a cultural wave and the wave passes you by and moves to the beach and another wave comes with the next generation. I think I'm nearing the beach. So I understand that some of the culture that will come in the next few years belongs already to the next generation, and I'm very much at peace with that. I have enjoyed being part of the art for a few decades, and I'm grateful for that. And I now take it more personally than ever, because I have the possibility of having 12 movies that talk to each other, as opposed to when you go at it for the first time and people try to define who you are by one, two, or three movies, you know? Now they have a dialogue. Pinocchio talks to Kronos, Pinocchio talks to Devil's Backbone, Pinocchio talks to Hellboy, to Shape of Water. That is, you realize that uh, as you go past your third decade as a filmmaker, you now have created an autobiography of the soul. I am very much my character. I'm the girl in Pants Labyrinth. I'm Hellboy. I'm Sally Hawkins in Shape of Water. I'm uh, the grandfather in Kronos. I'm all all of this character, so you know I take it very seriously. I've never approached filmmaking as something to make a living. I have never made a movie just to make it. I always, even the most commercial ones like Blade Two or Hellboy or Pacific Rim, I take them very, very personal. Even in Blade Two, there is a, a very poignant tale about a father and a son in the middle of it, or two fathers and two sons. So you know, I think we're coming. And to a moment of serenity.
1: Is that serenity you can see your complete picture when you look at all of these films, that every part of you is there in in a different way if you look at them all together? Yeah.
2: I think, look, if, if you see the movies, all of them together, you pretty much are having a dialogue with me. I don't think that we can answer or question everything we question in life through a body of work. But I think that it's something I'm producing new filmmakers, and I like uh, staying sort of interested that way, watching new films, uh, promoting new films, creating things for the next generation to use. So I see my work as expansive as opposed to reducing. I am not in a solipsistic mind. I'm about making it about others and producer and showcasing other people's work. So... That's changing too. More and more, I do that, and more and more, I think that's the key to happiness. Uh, the key to happiness is not you; is the others. You know how I, it was Sata that says hell is the others, heaven is the others too. So I think is so. Is I'm in that moment.
1: Just finally, with that working with others, this is obviously a collaborative project. Yeah, and I wanted to ask about how you split direction. I spoke earlier with Mark Gustafson, who was your co-director with this. Yeah. Um, how, do, how does that relationship work?
2: You know, it came very organically. I was the one that proposed that. I said to Mark, why don't we co-direct? Because the, the enterprise was so big, number one. And I had co-directed before in animation with uh, Rodrigo Blas. On Troll Hunters, a TV series, and on several episodes of that, and I know that I don't—I'm not shy. I have a very strong point of view, and I'm not afraid of it being challenged or counterpointed by a partner. I like it. I said yes to Mark more than I have said to any other human being, and when the time came for the movie to close or draw a line in the sand, I'm very good at saying, look, this is the way it's going to stay. These are the reasons, and we move on. But it's very easy. It was very easy. It's actually fun, and I loved it. What we did is I have my hand in three of the positions. I'm I'm co-producing, I'm co-writing the screenplay, and I'm co-directing. So I can be an ambassador um, in all three of them. That was very beneficial. Uh, Because I could say, if we need an extra day, I'll give ourselves an extra day, an extra week, whatever we want. And at the same time, to calibrate the operations day to day, even although we started during COVID and launched every shot of the movie by Zoom, we would do it together. We would instruct the animators together and uh, we would evaluate if the shot was successful or not together. We participated from then on, on a three-legged race. We did final assembly together with the editor, and we did final mix together, and we did color correction together, so it's been fun.
1: You've worked both with voice actors for this as well as animators. Oh, yeah. And what is the process like working with animators, and how do you reach the expression and the kind of level of of detail that that anyone can see so clearly in, in this film?
2: When we were recording, both Mark and I we will record the talent, uh, the voice talent, in, in the in the booth, and we ask for variations. So we leave with six, seven good takes. Some of them are more histrionic, more loud, quieter, and we choose and assemble the whole movie. We storyboard the entire movie, shoot those storyboards, put music and sound effects and dialogue to them, and then that's where you then make the exposure sheets which tells you what, how many syllables and how many vowels and consonants the animators have to do. Then you instruct the animators, and you say, this is the gesture that you need for this moment. Geppetto looks away, scratches his cheek, stumbles a little. And then we said to the animators, but if you find something else, do it. We empower them as actors. And we say, if the puppet wants to sit down, sit down. Don't even ask. That's the way you collaborate. They all, you also sometimes, if the scene is very difficult, because we stage it very much like live action, uh, the animators would stage a video of themselves acting the scene, and we would finesse that performance. In that moment where you, when you grab the cup of coffee, do it slower, or fa- turn the coffee around, the coffee cup around, make it a little more uh, cumbersome, and you direct them like you direct the actors. Yeah?
1: Well, it sounds like a painstaking process, but it really pays off. It's such a beautiful film. Thank
2: you. I think the only thing that we made clear, we said anybody can move the puppet. Motion is easy emotion is hard. We want emotion. If we see the puppet moving, but we don't understand what the puppet is feeling or thinking, we're going to do the shot again. And we demanded that much from the animators, and I think that
0: pays off in the film. And finally on today's show, Mark Gustafsson is the co-director of Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio, an animation visionary. He's behind TV programs like Claymation Easter and the brilliant 2009 film version of Fantastic Mr. Fox. Sophie began by asking him what it is about Pinocchio that makes stop motion the right format for the story. Well, I think it's because,
3: in large part, it's a story about a puppet and we're telling that story using puppets. And in our case, Pinocchio is the most sort of independent, free-thinking, ironically, character in the film, and he is supposed to be the puppet.
1: I wanted to ask you about the technicalities of how it is created. (laughs) So it's 24 frames per second, and it's a long film. It's almost two hours. What is the techniques and the technical aspects of the armatures and how people are manipulating the puppets in order to create that?
3: Well, stop motion is maybe the oldest technique of animation that there is. It's been going on right ever since cameras were invented. So really what we're doing is not changing that idea, that basic notion of, move the puppet a little bit, shoot a frame, move the puppet a little bit. Uh, We've just taken that to, you know, to an extreme. And all the technology that surrounds that, the computers and things are, you know, that just makes our job a little bit easier in terms of moving the camera and and moving lights around and just making it feel more sophisticated and making it feel more like a live-action film in some ways than an animated film. And part of that comes, of course, from Guillermo and his rather extensive filmography.
1: I wanted to ask about the kind of scale of this as well. So you use 3D printing, and as we say, there's so much involved, and it took around a 1,000 days to shoot. And you're also using puppets of very different scales. Could you talk a little bit about why you do that and how that works?
3: Initially, when you're trying to determine the size of the characters that you're going to shoot, you start with your star. And for us, that was Pinocchio. And you say, well, what's the smallest version of this puppet that we can make that's still animation friendly? And the reason we want to make it as small as we can is because that dictates the size of the other characters and of the sets themselves. And when you have many, many sets like we had, we had 60 units shooting at one point. So there's a vast amount of space that you take up. So the smaller you can make everything, the better. As I say, in this case, it was Pinocchio who sort of drove that whole equation.
1: Pinocchio, but all the characters, are really so expressive. And how do you create that expressiveness through stop motion?
3: It starts with the design of the character. You want a character that, even when it's not moving, you look at it, and it has a certain empathetic quality, or it tells you something about itself just simply sitting there. And then, you know, of course we have our voice actors who bring a huge amount to the table. And then our animators, and you sort of bring all those elements together. And our animators are actors in this case. They really have to perform these puppets. Because I think that there's no more sort of intimate relationship in animation than that of an animator and a puppet and a camera. There's not a lot of other hands, there's not a, not a lot of other people involved at that point. We've done all our work and it just comes down to that artist animating that puppet and really understanding the emotion of it and bringing that performance to life.
1: So it's a, really, it's a creative pursuit as well as having the kind of technical abilities of manipulating the puppets.
3: Yeah, the best animators are incredibly good technicians because there are so many details that you have to track when you're dealing with a puppet. They're very, very complicated uh, things. One of our puppets costs about as much as a, you know, a, a mid-sized car. <laughs> so, and there's a lot going on inside of a puppet. So they have to understand that. And then on top of that, they have to be the actor as well. They have to truly understand performance
1: this film took such a long time to produce. How did the art form change in that time, and did you kind of take on new technologies as, as it was developing?
3: Well, I think in some ways, you know, there, there are um, people like Leica who have pushed this technology right up to the edge, and they continue to push it forward. So we benefited in many ways from a lot of the, the gains that they had made. In other ways, we sort of pulled back from that because we were trying to go for something very specific in terms of getting at these really emotional performances with the characters so for example we used a limited amount of that printed faces we did it with pinocchio because it made sense because he's made of wood you know and that material didn't want to squash and stretch too much Uh, and also we wanted him to stand out in this world and so by doing him that way and then the other puppets were mechanical so they had like watch work uh, mechanisms inside their face and little paddles and things that you, the animator has to manipulate by hand or putting a little screw inside there and turning it uh, but with the mechanical puppets you can get a, a much more subtle performance out of them and and you can adjust it on the fly which is that's really the advantage of in some ways over the printed faces.
1: Just finally, you've become a real master of, of stop motion. As anyone who will look at your back catalog will tell, What what is it that is so enchanting to you about, about stop motion?
3: For me, it's the exact same thing that I felt on the first day that I walked onto a set when I knew nothing about animation and I wasn't in this business, but it was like toys. There they were, all my toys from my childhood. And there were adults playing with them. And I thought, wow, is there any way that I could continue <laughs> to play with my toys for the rest of my life? And I think that's, in a way, what I've done. I mean, they're, now my toys are incredibly expensive. But nonetheless, they're still toys to me.
1: Well, it's the perfect film then for that, isn't it? <laughs> Thank you so much for, for speaking with me. It's been a Absolutely. Real pleasure. Absolutely.
0: Thank you. And that is it for this week. Our thanks to Mark Gustafsson and Guillermo del Toro, and of course to Sophie. Monocle on Culture is produced by Sophie Monaghan Coombs and Steph Chung and Steph also edits the show. We'll be back at the same time next week. But until then, from me, Robert Bound, thank you for tuning in. <laughs>